Music, so they say, has charms to soothe the savage breast, or beast, depending on who you ask. Personally, I prefer the latter, as when I need to soothe a savage breast, I generally opt for vapor rub. Regardless, the music in this story is not soothing in the slightest, though it is transformative. Episode 6, Background Music. The electric doorbell of the Blythe House produces the standard two chimes in a descending major third, F-sharp 5 to D5. The D, however, is some 30 cents flat of concert pitch. The resulting interval, as the two tones slowly decay, warbles discordantly. Doubtlessly, this effect makes for a more attention-grabbing doorbell, as not more than two seconds elapse before the door is opened by a young man missing his entire jaw. Good afternoon, I say, my voice perfectly absent any indication of surprise. Indeed, I am not surprised by his condition. This is not the first victim I have met, after all, and I have seen a great many disfigurements. But I am not aware until the door opens what kind of mutation is about to confront me, and no matter how mentally prepared one is, coming face to face with a man missing the bottom third of his face is supremely alarming. I am alarmed by his blistered upper lip, his protruding partially dissolved front teeth, his lack of tongue, and the red glistening open maw of his throat, but I do not convey this alarm to him, as I am sensitive and professional. You must be Nicholas, I continue. I'm Dr. Trunt. He does not reply, for obvious reasons, but nods and beckons me in. The Blythe home is welcomingly presented, comfortable and neat, with the exception of many unsightly burn marks which dot the carpet. On the wall next to the staircase hang various family photographs. I recognised Nicholas in several of them, at a younger, more jaw-having age. Oh, that bloody doorbell! I hear from somewhere down the hall. Oh, it's killing me! We must get it turned down! In the doorway of the kitchen appears a man in his fifties, bald, with a neatly trimmed moustache and an enormous pair of ears. Each of his ears is slightly longer than the head to which they are attached, and correspondingly wide. Stuffed inside each one is enough cotton wool to soak up a pint of milk. Good afternoon, sir, I start to say, but am interrupted when the older man winces and covers what he can of his ears with his hands. Oh, it's agony! He cries, much louder than I had spoken. You'll have to whisper, I'm afraid. It's the only way I can stand to listen. My apologies, I whisper. You are Mr. Blythe? Dr. Trunt, I presume, he says, extending his hand. It's a pleasure. Call me Clive. Shortly thereafter, when tea has been made, the kettle whistling unsteadily in the range of G-sharp 6 to C7, and Clive muffling his ears with a set of sofa cushions, we position ourselves in the way most conducive to conversation. Clive and Nicholas inside the house, and I on the patio of the garden, the French windows closed between us. I hear you've been meeting with the other survivors, Clive says, putting deliberate emphasis on here and pointing jauntily at one of his oversized lugs, bracket slang for ears. That's correct, I say. You're in contact with them. No, no, just going off what our GP told us when he said you'd like to meet. What are the other cases like? I hesitate to answer. So far in my investigation into the heartbeams incident, I have met a man with a gelatinous skull whose head will deflate over the course of an hour if not injected with a saline solution. 
I have met a woman whose forehead has grown upwards and whose head is now twice its original height. I have met a woman, an expectant mother during the incident, whose eyes melted out of her head and will never see her new baby, who was born with a set of long, jagged teeth like an anglerfish. The other cases are troubling. Well, I got off lightly. What's happened to me is a trifle compared to what my dear Nicky has been through. Clive pats his son on the shoulder. Nicholas blinks. Clive and I were also frequently blinking during this conversation for the record, but when we did so, it did not seem significant enough to mention. After a little more pleasant chit-chat of this nature, I asked Clive to recount for me, in as much detail as possible, his experience of the incident. I record here an unedited transcription of his words. All the interjections are mine, for obvious reasons. Well, it was late in the afternoon. We were in the supermarket. Which supermarket would that be? Sainsbury's. Which branch of Sainsbury's? The one here. Where? In Basingstoke. I see, please go on. We were in the frozen food section. I realised we'd forgotten to pick something up in the last aisle, so I asked Nick to go and fetch it. I carried on in the other direction. That was when it started. The, uh, the mutation? No, the song. I didn't feel anything change until half a minute in. You remember the song? I remember hearing it. I thought, no, nah, that's a pretty tune. And it was, how would I describe it? It was soothing, you know how I mean? It gave me that feeling you get slipping into a warm bath or lying in fresh bedsheets about to drift off. Do you, by any chance, remember the melody? Could you sing it? No, nah, I'm afraid not. Perhaps if you caught me on the day, but it's quite gone now. Anyway, that's when Nick came back around the corner, all this bloody foam spilling from his mouth. I, I ran over to him and wiped his mouth with my sleeve, and wouldn't you know it, the foam ate right through my shirt. Then when I looked back at him, his lips were already gone. The pain must have been getting to him because he fainted a moment later. I thought I'd lost him, I did. So the staff called an ambulance. I hadn't noticed anything happening to me, but when it pulled up outside, I heard the siren as loudly as if it had been right there in the shop. I felt my ears, and that's when I realised they'd swollen up. Hours they kept growing for. I followed the ambulance to the hospital in my car, the siren ringing in my ears the whole drive. Time we arrived, all I could hear was fuzz and tinnitus. Well, I expect you can surmise the rest of the story from there. We were both in the hospital for weeks, in a private room. The next morning, they told us it had been part of this incident. The Melodax people came, asked us to hush up, paid us the settlement money. Eventually we were released, came home, and we've been chugging along just fine ever since. Nicholas nodded gently. You've both adjusted to your new circumstances, then. Ah, circumstances, schmirkumstances, said Clive Blythe. Life may not be as easy as it once was, but we survived. We were the lucky ones. In my personal investigation into the Heartbeams incident, I have observed the following. One, while the percentage of the population susceptible to Heartbeams disease amounts to less than 0.01%, in every case where more than one member of the same bloodline was present at the incident, all relatives were affected. Two, each individual affected by Heartbeams disease presents with unique symptoms. Three, all surviving victims show a positive affect and present no signs of any mental trauma from the incident. I believe that these findings are significant. Though I am not a doctor of medicine, I am a musicologist. 
Melodax Incorporated is a company which provides background music to other businesses, mostly supermarkets and indoor shopping complexes. Such music is colloquially referred to as being piped in, which conjures a whimsical image of sound flowing like water through plumbing. The truth is far more banal, and in fact primarily involves wires. The Heartbeams incident was so named after the record provided by Melodax, which, on its debut in some 500 businesses across the length and breadth of Britain, triggered the mutations now referred to as Heartbeams disease. In search of this record and its provenance, I visit Melodax in person one dry, wintry morning. The company is housed in the threepenny-bit building in Croydon, spread across two floors. Naturally, there is music playing throughout the entire premises at a volume slightly below conversational speech. As I enter, a light string ballad is finishing up and is replaced by a Cuban cha-cha-cha. There is also an odd scent in the air, something musty, like a pet shop. It is defiantly out of place in this formal setting. The music continues in the office of August Pike, CEO. He is a sleepy-looking man in his mid to late sixties with eyebrows that have a bushy horn two-thirds of the way along on either side. I often wonder why men with such eyebrows don't simply pluck or trim them, as I do with my naturally prodigious monobrow and have done since puberty. But perhaps a decline in vanity is one of the rewards of old age. Pike remains seated as I enter his office and gestures for me to take a seat. There is no seat on the opposite side of the desk, so I sit on a small sofa pressed against the adjacent wall. We are some ten yards apart. You're a scientist, is that it? Of a fashion though I have a personal interest in this particular incident. He nods as if he has been briefed on all this and is now recalling it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let me make one thing perfectly clear from the outset. This situation has been thoroughly dealt with. Nothing like this will ever happen again. That's good to know, Mr Pike. Of course, it was a freak incident, completely unheard of, but we've taken precautions. For instance, Every record in the Melodax library, even the pre-existing catalogue, mind, is now tested before it is ever allowed to be played on our system. What kind of test? We have mice listen to them. They're just through there, he says, pointing out of the door I came in through. Teaching them to shop was the tricky part. So far, though, everything's been normal. As you can see, we're doing all that we can. It'll never happen again. I'm glad to hear that, Mr Pike. For me, however, the concern remains. Why did it happen at all? What was it about heartbeams that caused all this? This is why I came today. I was hoping to meet with the man who composed the piece. Oh, no, no, no. I'm afraid that's out of the question. The man responsible for the, uh, the particular record. Heartbeams. Yes, that's the one. The composer has been sacked and uh, every copy of the record destroyed. Everything he ever produced for us, in fact. I see. We thought that the best course of action. He was a wrong on that one. How so? Real piece of work. But he's gone now. Good riddance, I say. Surely, though, you have his details. I'd be grateful if you could put us in touch. I'm afraid not. Persuasion has never been high on the list of my talents. Most people, having immediately decided upon meeting me that they will not entertain my requests, find any persistence in the matter at least irritating and at most repellent. However, I have no other avenue through which to identify the composer of Heartbeams than this man, in this office, in this peculiarly shaped building. I persist. Please put me in touch with the composer. No. Please? No. I would like you to put me in touch with the composer. I shan't. Please? No. I want you to. I don't care. <laughs>
Go on. I think it's time for you to leave, Mr. Trunk. My name is Trunt. Dr. Trunt. Nevertheless. And thus our meeting ends. Upon my egress from the Melodax offices, I pass a battery of small interconnected cages. Within I see white mice scurrying up and down the aisles of a miniature supermarket. They push trolleys made from silver wire. They pass shelves stocked with raisins, sunflower seeds and individual cornflakes. One of them seems to be reading the back of a tiny box of porridge oats. The two great passions of my life, thus far, as inextricable as two strands of nucleic acid forming a DNA helix, are music and my twin sister, Greta. Our love of music was kindled early. When we shared a womb, our mother would play gramophone records and feel our rhythmic kicks in tandem upon her uterine wall. By the time we were born, though we could not yet hold up our heads, we could tap out a four to three polyrhythm. People do not believe me when I tell them this. They become enraged and claim it a fabrication. In my view, it is this lessening of expectations when it comes to infants that spells doom for the future of our species. Where I was drawn to music as an academic pursuit, for Greta, it was pure expression, the lens through which she saw the world and the tools she used to interact with it. Music was her first language, before English even. While I had no aptitude for composition, tunes sprang into Greta's head fully formed. Some she kept, scribbled down in crude notation on whatever scrap paper was handy, or sung into a cassette recorder. Others she would whistle once, then simply let float away into nothingness, as fleeting and unaffected as birdsong. She never took up an instrument. Sometimes when I would be struggling away at the piano, hunting endlessly for the right combination of notes, she would wander over, watching over my shoulder for a moment, then depress a few keys. She always chose correctly. But she couldn't play a single piece beyond chopsticks and its lesser-known cousin, the untitled pentatonic riff played on the black keys with the knuckles. Had she dedicated herself to singing, she could have been one of the greatest of her generation. Had she followed her talent for composition into a career, her melodies would have lived forever, as timeless as nursery rhymes. In adulthood, however, she was content to remain a listener, the type of person who doesn't really mind what they do or where life takes them, as long as they have the radio or a handful of records. But, Dr. Trunt, I imagine you asking at this juncture, why have you interrupted your story about the heartbeams incident for this pleasant but unrelated diatribe about your sister, delivered in the past tense? I imagine you asking this, though I am sure you know as well as I do where this departure from the narrative is headed. Greta is the very first victim of heartbeams I see. Unlike many of the affected, she is unaltered in shape. The only visible effect is a faint purplish spiderweb-like pattern on patches of her otherwise pale and lifeless skin. The cause of death, her autopsy confirms, was a rapid crystallisation of the blood. The pain, if she was not killed instantly, ought to have been excruciating, one doctor callously tells me, his bedside manner perhaps blunted by my sharing of his honorific. You wouldn't have known it to look at her, he continues, and he is right. On my sister's face is the most peaceful smile I have ever known. I have interviewed every survivor of the heartbeams incident. I have taken copious notes on their medical histories, their lifestyles, their family backgrounds. I have cross-referenced them by height, by weight, 
by eye and hair colour, by diet, by religion, by income bracket, by blood type, what music they listen to, what music they dislike. And I have found not the slightest correlation between any of it. A scientist could not ask for a more perfectly diverse sample group, yet they share something. Their genomes harboured a potential for catastrophe, which was triggered simultaneously at different points across the country by a series of waves emitting from a tinny, echoey, low-fidelity sound system and vibrating their eardrums, the sensation of which their brains translated into pitch, timbre and rhythm. Where in that process does all the skin on a man's body begin to transform into tongue skin, taste buds and all? And why, if he can no longer take a bath without tasting his own juices, is he so damned happy? When I return to the threepenny bit building, I wear not my usual two-piece corduroy suit and paisley shirt, but a pair of khaki cargo trousers and a matching polo shirt. I catch sight of my reflection while passing a large window and experience a brief flutter of concern that I'm nude, which is assuaged when I involuntarily grasp at my crotch and find it well covered. In addition to this disguise, I carry a cardboard box full of white mice, purchased at a surprising premium from a nearby pet shop. The reason for this will become apparent presently. I return to the offices of Melodax Incorporated and introduce myself to the receptionist. Good afternoon. I have a delivery for Melodax Incorporated. It is a box of mice. All right, says the receptionist. You can just leave that here on my desk. Are you sure? I ask. I believe the mice are tired from their journey and keen to get situated in a cage. I would hate for you to have to put up with a box of irritable mice. It's all right, I'll give the boys in the lab a ring and they'll be out here in a jiffy to pick them up. At the risk of jeopardising my plan, I resort once more to persuasion. Please let me take the mice inside. I would like to see the mice off personally. The receptionist gives me a look which, historically, has preceded my being shouted at by figures of authority. If you insist, she says, just through there, follow the smell of mice. My plan is successful. After dropping off the box of mice to a researcher who is not expecting a delivery of mice, I simply sneak into a small storage room where I secrete myself behind several boxes of typewriter ribbons and wait in silence for the next six hours. I occupy myself in this time by mentally reciting the circle of fifths over and over. When I am sure the Melodax offices are empty for the night, it is a simple matter of removing myself from the storage room and searching every filing cabinet I find until eventually I come across the employee records. This takes a mere three hours. In a folder marked Terminated, I find a file for a former employee called Blake Appleby. He is marked as a contributing artist. I find a payslip in the amount of £35. In a column marked Deliverables, I see the word Heartbeams. This is the man. I stash Appleby's file in my pocket and make for the exit. The door to the stairwell is locked, however, and I am forced to wait. Shortly before dawn, a cleaner arrives and unlocks the door. He looks surprised to see me, lying in front of it, using one of my shoes as a pillow. Sorry, I say as I put my shoe back on. I was locked in. I fell asleep on the toilet. The cleaner says nothing. I call Appleby under the guise of a record company executive and arrange to meet with him for an informal job interview. We meet at a location of his choosing, a Soho jazz bar called Grima's. It is late in the afternoon, and the bar is not yet open for public service. 
As I enter, I hear a series of monstrously overextended chords played on an electric organ. There on the stage, noodling away at his keyboard, I see the man who wrote the song which killed my sister. Though he cannot be out of his late twenties, he's already balding. An obnoxiously perfumed herbal cigarette dangles from one side of his mouth, and a tall glass of some tropical concoction or other rests atop the organ, complete with pineapple rings and paper umbrella. Blake Appleby, I call out upon the resolution of what might loosely have been termed a song. He picks up his drink and steps down off the stage to shake my hand. Call me fingers, he says. Why? It's what people call me, Fingers Appleby. Is it? Yes, on account of my playing. Oh. One uses the fingers, you know, when playing the organ. Hence, fingers. Yes, very clever. We sit at a booth to the side of the stage. Get you a drink? Asks Fingers. Uh, A glass of water would be nice. Derek? He calls over to the only other person in the place, a man at the bar wiping a glass with a dishcloth. He doesn't respond. Derek? Derek? Derek, can we have a... uh, Derek? I can go without, I say. Appleby takes a sip of his own drink, his mouth failing to find the tip of his straw for the first few attempts. Enough niceties. I begin my interrogation. Who were your last employers? Uh, Melodax, firm down in Croydon. Background music for shops and lifts, that sort of thing. How long did you work for them? Um, Barely a month, actually. It sounds bad, I know, there's no getting around it. What happened? That's what was so strange about it all. I haven't the faintest idea. Tell me about the work you did for them. Well, I only finished one piece for them. It was a a kind of bossa nova number, you know. Organ, drums, bass, etc. I demoed it with some of the boys from the club here. Then I did some overdubs, little sonic embellishments of my own imagining. And uh, so I played it to them down at Melodank, expecting them to say, oh, it needs a more fleshed-out arrangement, get some strings on it, some horns. But no, they loved it as it was, and uh, brought the master from me. And barely a week later, I'm shafted. No explanation, not so much as a wave farewell. What was your song called? Heartbeams. He takes a last sip of his drink, the straw producing a strained gurgle as it reaches the final dregs. It is clear to me as I look at Fingers Appleby, that he is telling the truth. He knows nothing about the violent repercussions of his work. I came here wanting him to look me in the eyes and face the hurt he has caused me. I wanted to hear what he had to say about the people I've met whose lives have been drastically altered because of what he created. But as I look at him now, sat across from me, accidentally extinguishing his cigarette on a pineapple ring, I cannot bear to burden him with the truth. The Heartbeams incident has hurt enough people. Yep, it's a damn shame. I ought to have kept that tune for myself. I think if a real record company, like yours for instance, had picked it up, it could have been a hit. Maybe I'd become the next Walter Wanderley. Well, I'm sorry for your loss. I'd have liked to hear it. Oh, you can hear it. I have a copy right here. I made sure to duplicate it before I handed over the masters. I brought it for you to take with you, as it's my only recorded work. 
only recorded work so far, that is. If you like it, I have tons of ideas for more in the same vein. As he speaks, he clambers back up onto the stage where his bag is sat next to the organ and removes from it a 7.5 IPS tape reel. He holds it out for me, and I take it with hands I can hardly keep from shaking. Hey, are you free tonight? My set here starts at eight. Maybe you could bring along some more folks from your company. Through a suddenly tight throat, I say I'm not sure. I thank him for the tape and tell him I may be in contact. As I leave Grima's, he returns to his organ and starts to play. Now I sit on the edge of my bed. It has grown dark outside, but in my flat, the lights are off. Over on my desk, my reel-to-reel recorder sits, Appleby's tape on the feed spindle, ready to play. My head is swimming through an all-consuming silence. I could use a little music to ease the mood. Love, I'm in heaven, lie me. 